Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hi, I'm Bruce Daisley. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. You can connect to us via the website. That's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can click on the screen in front of you, slide down the page and rate us. I've got it on good authority that high ratings result in positive karma. Now, we started this podcast at the start of the year, largely as a, an attempt to understand how we can improve our work. So much nonsense spoken by sort of self-appointed experts. And I've tried to pick between the gurus to try and find some of the facts. And for many people, the best guest of the year was Andre Spicer. And Andre joins me to wrap up the year in culture. So, Andre, welcome. Hi there, Bruce. Hello there. Thanks. for You've had a busy year, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a busy one. I've had a few, two books out, in fact, uh, one, on the, one on the heels of the other one, um, one about uh, business bullshit, so the empty talk which you're faced with in work. The second one um, uh, was about really self-improvement, which was basically talking about an experiment which we did last year. And somewhere in between, my my daughter became a global social media celebrity. Oh, man, I forgot about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So she was basically fined for running a lemonade stand um, by the local council, and the story spread across the world. And I had friends contacting me from Kazakhstan and saying, I saw your daughter on the news. We're going to come on to both of the books. Go on, tell us the, the lemonade story. So the lemonade story is like, I, I guess, in a very American, but probably now global tradition. Yeah. Your daughter set up a lemonade stand. Yeah. So basically, it was just getting towards the end of the school year. And I was sort of scratching my, my head like any parent thinking, okay, how do I entertain her? And she just had a school fate, which is like in England, you know, a school fair where you sell things. And she said, I want to have a stand. And I said to her, well, okay, what do you want to sell? Your toys? You know, there's too much stuff in the house. Get rid of a bit. No, no, Daddy, I don't want to do that. And then I thought, well, you know, the classic is the lemonade stand. She was, yes, let's do that. So we went down to the shop, local shop, bought some lemonade, uh, lemons, made some lemonade up, went down to the street, and there was a music festival happening at at the time. Um, And people were passing by, and we sold some lemonade, and everyone was, you know, beaming with joy at the five-year-old kid um, and uh, selling some lemonade, doing a brisk trade. And then suddenly the local enforcement officials come up to us and say... Right, so these are the police who are sort of policing the festival? Exactly. Not the police, but they're the um, basically licensing officials. So they're employed by the local council. And they come and say, okay, you've got to close down the lemonade stand. I thought, okay, fair digs, you know, go home, you know. And then they said, okay, here's here's a £100 fine for doing that. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And so you, you... 
how did you draw attention? I saw you tweeted about it, but did you? I, I tweeted about it, yeah, and then quite a few people reacted reacted to it. You know, good old power of Twitter. Yeah. Um, but then also, I I thought, okay, you know, this is outrageous. So I wrote I wrote something for a newspaper here, and uh, it got picked up instantly. So it seemed that it kind of touched a nerve, and then the story went across the world, right, <laughs> <laughs> everywhere, and it seemed to really kind of speak to people from everywhere, from uh, you know, the US, obviously, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, she even became one of the lead jokes, and I think um, uh, the last leg, which is a Amazing. kind of a you know comedy show here. So yeah. And how's your daughter about it? Because in the story, I vividly remember you saying that she was left in tears. Yeah. So t- yeah. has she been able to appreciate the full circle of how it's ended up? Yeah. So she saw one or two things. So I was asked to go on uh, Good, Good Morning Britain here, which has got Piers Morgan, which many right. of your viewers would. My daughter saw Piers Morgan. She said. Who's that horrible man? <laughs> but he was getting a little bit aggressive. A lot of it passed her by, really. And uh, and th- and then uh, at the end of summer, there's a really nice little festival which is held by us called the Shuffle Festival, um, which is organised by a, a, a filmmaker called Danny Boyle who made um, uh, Train Spotting and Slumdog Millionaire, amongst other films. Um, and it's in an old graveyard, and that we were asked to come and set up the lemonade stand there, and we did it again. It was like a nice little oh, local kind I of thing. I like it. It's so like she. Like new of the movie exactly <laughs> exactly yeah so that taught me one or two things about regulation and how stories travel and also how things can mean very different things in different places so here everyone was like good on you but then when the story went to the US the, the, a lot of people came back to me on Twitter and said if this was a, a African American or Latino kid they'd be probably uh, in jail right so there's lots of kind of particularly slightly older kids I right. guess teenagers who are trying to make a bit of money by selling you know, something on the street, and they often get jailed or harassed by the cops. So it begins to point out to you things can mean very different things in different spaces. Right. Wow. Extraordinary. Right. We're going to go through um, some of the sort of the big business issues of the year. And it's been a bit of business culture issues, really. And, and I suppose, um, to a large extent, some of the biggest business stories of the year have been business culture stories. So yeah. we're going to kick off, really, with, with the Susan Fowler story. And um, an old bit, we're going to go on and talk about the BBC pay gap and, and various other things. If the BBC pay gap, I think, revealed what a lot of companies are hiding below the surface, then... What Susan Fowler did is she drew attention to something that maybe isn't as common but does exist. So to take it in, Susan Fowler was a 26-year-old site reliability engineer at Uber. By the end of the year, she was the Financial Times Person of the Year. Times Magazine had named her one of its uh, People of the Year. She was number two on the Recode 100. Incredible transformation. And it was all because she did this post about her one-year experience at working at Uber. And, and along the way, she brought down the CEO of the biggest private company in the world, Travis Kalanick at Uber. Um, largely, I guess she sort of, she highlighted the programmer culture that had gone top to bottom in the company and, and sort of spilled into sexual harassment and, mm-hmm. and the, these things. Um, do you think there's more of this to come in 2018, the, the, the unveiling of... Uh, misdemeanors. Yeah, so what we've seen is kind of progressively misdemeanors being unveiled across different industries, and it seems that unfortunately now it's the turn for tech, right? So tech companies have got bigger and bigger and they affect all of our lives and this is one of the first companies that's been really the spotlight's being shone on it, and and the question is does the spotlight begin to be shone on some of the other big tech firms? Um, Do you think it's just tech though? Because I understand sort of tech has become is in the spotlight, right? Because Uber's on 
a, a billion phones around the world. Yeah. So consequently, he's got this high awareness, high visibility. But is it just tech or or tech are just the 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 torch bearers because they're so high profile and prominent? Yeah, I guess so. They're taking a lot of the hits, yeah. right? But if I think, say, three, four years ago, uh, who was that? Who was taking the hits then? It was the banks, right? Right. Uh, and maybe it was before that consumer goods companies or healthcare or whatever. So I think it's it's kind of um, what we see is the sort of shifting attention. And, and you know, I spend a lot of time my, my time looking at, say, banks, slightly more boring organizations, but there's still a lot of misdemeanors coming out of that. And I think as tech grows, what we're likely to see is people shining more of a light on it, whether that's regulators or employees inside of it. The other thing I was going to say, which I think is generalizing a little bit more beyond just the industry, is if you think about it, um, one of the great things that which has happened with the kind of shift of technology is that suddenly you can, you know, you can put out your bad work practices or things which you're seeing uh, quite quickly, right? So you don't have to suffer it. You can take a photo, to make a film of it, um, communicate it more broadly. And this means that whistleblowing uh, suddenly changes really quickly, right? So there's um, a guy called uh, Robert Phillips, who's um, an ex- ex-CEO of Edelman, uh, the world's biggest large uh, privately held PR firm. And he makes the point that uh, in the past, you had to go through all of these gatekeepers to get a story out there. Now there's few gatekeepers. And when something goes wrong, it can kind of immediately blow up for both good or bad. Um, And this means that companies have to be a lot more... what would you call it? Circumspect and look more a lot, lot more look look in a lot more detail at what's going on within the organisations, right? right? So, so what you're saying is, previously, if you, if someone wanted to draw attention to a misdemeanour, they've either got legal recourse that requires sort of various filters, yep. or they've got press, which again, you know, it's a lot of hurdles for any 26 year old to get yep. the press to pay attention. Whereas now you can put it in the spotlight, and for good or for bad, yeah. You, you've cut out those filters along the way. Absolutely. So that we see this happening again and again, and it's not just sort of uh, you know programmers in Silicon Valley doing this. We also see, say, factory workers in China who'll who'll make a film of what they're seeing in their factory, you know, and then that gets distributed across the world, and and then that puts pressure on whether that's uh, mobile phone makers or sneaker makers to change the kind of work practices in some ways. So it's like television. Everyone's carrying around a television camera. Yeah, right. There was an interesting thing. So we're recording this on the day that um, Damien Green's been sacked by the, the Prime Minister's uh, her deputy. And it's come out in today's news that actually someone went and reported him. And it seems like it was reported to the staff at number 10 and it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. And I just wonder if the next way that it might continue is that firms will end up with this commitment that they're not going to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements when when things have happened within because mm-hmm. it, it, it feels at the moment there's still the protection yeah. that if you sign a non-disclosure agreement yeah. this bad thing that happened in the company's name has allowed the the protagonist the yeah. the, the miscreant to yeah. go on and do more bad stuff yeah. so I, I think that could be an interesting step but i think what's what's really even more important here is that it doesn't just allow an individual to go on and do more bad stuff it actually allows the organization yeah. to forget it happened right so um we've I've, i'm working with a, a researcher at CAS at the moment, a guy called Yuka Rentamaki, and he's really interested in how corporations forget. 
And one of his points is that they forget often through when when something goes wrong and it just gets covered up, right? When people when something goes wrong and people talk about it and say, okay, we did something wrong here, this and this and this happened, we've got to learn from it and we're not going to do it again, they're more likely to remember and not do it again. But if it just they sign a non-disclosure agreement, it goes away, it's nice legally, but it means that the company quite quickly can end up in the same position again. So let me just give you one example of that. Remember the VW scandal with yeah. the emissions? Actually, VW did the same thing uh, about 20 or 30 years beforehand, right? So they were cheating on emissions scores. The FDA fined them. Then a VW said, oh, we're never going to do this again. And lo and behold, they forget about it. And then a few years later, they do the same thing. And it means that it almost cost the company. So we need to think about ways in which companies, I don't think just create, you know, with this wrongdoing, just create a scandal and put the point the finger at people, and that means that everyone's uh, you know very um, hands off and doesn't do anything, doesn't take any risks. It's saying, okay, we did something bad. This is what went wrong, and this is how we're going to remember it and not do it again. Right. And and looking at the original offence, so looking at that sort of bro culture, that machismo that was driving Uber, I suspect. In the same way that the the BBC pay gap is is far more common, but we just uh, we, we're given tiny glimpses into what's going on. Do, do you think these practices, these these sort of locker room style environments, are more common, and we're going to get more exposure of them? Um, I think that they're fairly common in some places. If you look at I mean, high banking, te- must have these things, absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. So if you look at the kind of scandals following the banking industry, right? One of the number one things they pointed out was locker room culture, high aggressive male col- kind of culture, and then that would often lead to high degrees of risk taking. Sometimes that had benefits, but often it would lead to very negative kind of outcomes. Whether that was just kind of abusive behaviour in the workplace, both against women and men themselves, or whether that's uh, whether that's you know um, taking risks for on behalf of clients or all those kind of things, and um, the regulators in the banking space and the banks themselves have tried to kind of take on that culture by either increasing the number of women on, on the floor, uh, trying to get people to speak out, trying to sort of tone down some of the sort of signals of you know ma- masculine culture around yeah. around the place. So I think that's the starting point. Um, but but dealing with these things takes time, I guess. Yeah, I think I think truly exactly like you say, getting more women around the place is yeah. the only answer to it. I think yeah. you know because albeit you can make all these provisions and these rules, I think it's just the the day to day policing of things by yeah. just having a more diverse workforce. Yeah, absolutely. So I I mean, we're, you know, the one thing we know from social science is that when you get a d- more diverse workforce, generally speaking, if you have a homogeneous workforce, everyone's the same. It tends to mean that people like working with each other and uh, they come up with average good solutions on the middle. Uh, whereas if you have a diverse workforce, you're more likely to have either really bad performance or really good performance. Now, the question you face as a manager or someone working with a diverse team is how do you turn that good bad performance into good performance? And the main thing is that when you have difference in the workplace, you have to get that on the table to start off with. Because generally, when you get a diverse group of people in the room, everyone wants to pretend they're the same. Yeah, they yeah, say, yeah. oh, you know, Bruce, you and I have got the same T-shirt on yeah. or something like that. Uh, but that covers over the differences. And inevitably, when you're put in a pressure cooker situation, those differences are going to come out sometime and they're likely to derail the process if you haven't got them on the table first. You often hear that these resource groups, where which is, you know, um, sort of groups based on ethnicity or yeah. sexuality, yeah. are one of the best best correlates for um, people feeling more at home at work and, f- and feeling more anchored. Yeah. I guess because they can 
get their diversity out on the exactly, table. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But also being able to communicate that with other people, when, and particularly when there's a sense of, hey, we disagree. So being able to respectfully disagree with right. each other and see you and I think slightly differently here. Okay, I can buy that. Bruce is coming from here. I'm coming from here. And then we can work from that versus that problem comes out when we're supposed, you know, a few days before we're supposed to deliver and turns into a huge fight. Yes. So looking forward then, I mean, you know, we've started to see these things come to the U- the US realm of politics. There's a lot of yep. it going on in the Senate and the House. These British parliaments start to see it. I suspect, you know, outside of my Anglo-American prism, there's, there's, there's stuff going on elsewhere. Yeah. I suspect we're going to see... Very likely an extension of the Susan Fowler effect then, then, you know, more big heads might roll next year. Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the most fascinating things which has happened this year, I'll talk a little bit more about it later maybe, is the Me Too movement, mm. right? Which has just brought to, brought to the fore a lot of the um, the kind of everyday, you know, sexism, harassment and stuff which people face in the workplace from very small things up to egregious, you know, abuses in some ways. Um, and I think that's had two things. First, two effects. First, I think it's made women feel more like, hey, it wasn't just me. It, I, I'm sharing something here. And I think the other thing which hasn't been spoken about, uh, but it's really important, is it's forced, you know, men like myself to sort of rethink my own behaviours and say, hey, when have I stepped across the line? Where's that subtle line? And actually begin reflecting on it a little bit more and saying, how can I do something different in my own workplace? Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated that because you're sort of checking all of the language. I think it's probably it's far more linguistic than you ever think as well, yeah. like casual yeah. jo- comments and jokes. I was really struck by, um, I saw a couple of people, or a group of women, women journalists have created the second source. I think in the absence of unionisation, uh, the, yeah. the absence of someone that you can go to collectively yeah. to, to assert your case. Uh, second source is a group of female journalists who are really trying to respond to the, the sexism and the pressure that they felt in that uh, trade, largely because one of the areas where you especially find male exploitation is in the, the area of contract work. Yeah. Contract workers who have got no security of employment, so yeah. they're, they're easier to be abused and, and sort of the, the line to be crossed because there's a reliance, there's a dependency. And I was interested in the formation of that group. I wonder if there'll be other groups forming or, or other groups trying to give you that voice. Because Susan Fowler, when she posted her blog post, she'd resigned her job, she had nowhere to go to. It was an act of sort of abandonment and desperation. And I wonder how much more empowered people would feel like if they knew that there was a there was a group of people around them. Yeah. I mean it's a great question. Um I'd love to see a spread of these kind of things. I mean, first of all, many contract workers don't really have the opportunity to sort of swap notes about what are the rates here, yeah. who's a good employer, who's not, you know, those kind of things. And and formation of these kind of second source models in other industries is probably a really great, uh, great sort of step forward. I suppose the other thing which you point out here is that we have to remember, we always tell this, uh, the heroic story about whistleblowing, right? Oh, they changed the industry, top person in time. But, you know, most significant proportion, you know, nine something percent of whistleblowers lose their job, can't find another job in the industry, 
uh, you know, suffer serious mental, serious mental health things, break up of relationships. So whistleblowing often isn't a very nice thing, right? Yeah, and and I think you know they're they're proved right by history. But yeah, like you look at Colin Kaepernick in the Take yeah. a Knee movement. Absolutely, lionized, celebrated, yeah. Yeah. Uh, without a job. Absolutely, absolutely. And the interesting thing there is, there's actually been some sort of uh, when when this happened in Parliament. You know, there was uh, women coming out and talking about you know the sexist culture in Parliament. I mean, I started thinking about what can you do to get people to speak up? This is a kind of a thing across many industries. And you can't just say, okay, we've got a hotline or we've got this or whatever. What you have to do is, first of all, uh, show people, uh, do informal encouragement to people to speak up about small stuff before it becomes big stuff. The second thing is that you can get people to um, to show them if you speak up, this is what happens, right, in terms of positive change, even if it's small stuff. And also lessen the symbols of power. So if you walk into Westminster, it looks like, you know, it's there to try and intimidate mm. you, right, mm. particularly if you haven't been in this kind of grandiose environment before. If you soften some of those symbols of power, people might feel a little bit more willing to speak up, I think, and and, and informally encourage this kind of speaking up, I think. And, and if you look at industries where, where, where you know, safety is really important, like airline industry, that's of stuff. What you find is that actually people are rewarded for saying, hey, we made a mistake here, this is what went wrong, this is how we fixed mm. it, etc. So I would be, wouldn't be surprised, this is what happened in banking, I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of thing spreads a little yeah. bit more. I'd personally just love to see, having spoken, not at the company I'm at now, but having spoken to HR people from previous companies I've worked at and big and successful companies, and they often say, they'll give me you know, a list of senior executives who had strikes against their name who were challenged you know one of the companies worked out some of them went to court in high profile court cases and the the burden of the company what sometimes we forget is that hr's job is to protect the company yeah it's not to protect the individual yeah. so consequently the hr team is doing everything they can to minimize the reputational damage yeah. and i'd just love to see an edging of that where companies assert that our ethics are that we never defend wrongdoing in the company's name because yeah. it's not in the company's name it's in an individual's name absolutely but they're they're the company's instinct, the way that HR is currently constructed, is to side with the, the the person who's creating the indiscretion rather than the victim. Yeah, so it's I guess it's something about an ethic of care, yeah. isn't it? Right, a sense that a part of the job of HR is to care for the employees there in different kind of ways. And this is one way in which they might do it, is to make sure that uh, if the employee has done nothing wrong, then they've got some you know someone in their corner, right? Yeah. So, so the second one, uh, I guess, biggest high-profile issue that was front-page news for days and days was the BBC pay gap. Yeah. And, you know, um, I guess self-inflicted to some extent because their new charter said that they had to publish yeah. the, the, the data on salaries, but blew up largely because I suspect the press have got a vested interest against the BBC. So, mm. so it, was, it was suitable news. Uh, I'd like to see the, the Daily Mail pay gap. <laughs> but um, but they were a, a sort of a big news story there. And I guess in aggregate with the Uber story and the, the Me Too movement, it does feel like there's a big shift in uh, these opaque strategies of running companies are probably going to be very almost indefensible in the future. Mm. I just wondered your view on that. Yeah, so this is a really interesting one, like increased transparency. So we see kind of two things going on at the moment. So you have on the one hand this big movement of let's – 
provide lots of transparency about everything, whether that's, you know, how the workplace is operating, how well you're doing, um, what the pay differentials are in the company, who's getting paid what. I mean, we could imagine in a sort of Scandinavian situation where in, in say, Sweden, you can go on and look at absolutely everyone's tax record. How much tax do they pay and how much do they earn? Everyone in the country. And most people, most right? Brits, yeah, yeah. Most people, Brits would be saying, oh, I don't want that to happen. But that's one extreme, I guess. Right? Yeah, I think Brits would rather appear nude than reveal their exactly. salary. And they wouldn't want to appear nude. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's that extreme. The other, the, other, the other thing which is going on still is kind of increasing inequality, right? Um, and that's across society, but it's also in some, in some companies. So my you know, sector, higher education, there's been, you know, within its own little area, there's been huge scandals about uh, the pay that vice chancellors yeah. receive. I mean, just yesterday I found out they're, they're kind of cutting back the pension scheme like in many, many institutions. But one of the vice chancellors getting paid uh, 90000 just to sit on the committee of the of the pension scheme, right, to cut it back. So it sort of doesn't look very good when you're getting what, paid. To hide the, some of the pay? No, no. He, so, he's, he, so he gets paid a lot for his um, job as a vice chancellor, and then he gets paid even more to sit on the committee right. of the pension scheme amazing. to cut it back, right? right so amazing. it just smacks of hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess this is one of the things that it points out some of the issues with uh, transparency. And now... Okay, so we all think, you know, sunlight, a little sunlight is the best dense disinfectant. Um, but there's actually some research which suggests that pay transparency can be bad sometimes. Now, the reason for that is that if you have perfect pay transparency, everyone then looks at the top performer in the firm and says, I want that. Right. Right? So it then often then means that pay gets ratcheted up, not necessarily for, for the best performance. And the other thing is that if pay doesn't go up, people then feel resentful, right? So it can have the the unintended consequence of um, people, uh, you know, pay going up, uh, ratcheting up costs and also f- fostering resentment. I guess the good side of it is that, you know, it, it, it might create downwards pressure on pay in some cases. Yeah, I saw this, um, there's an organisation called Buffer and that had uh, Deborah Ripple on from Buffer. And Buffer are like this radical transparency company. And, yeah. and uh, as context, their avowed goal is not to grow fast. And, and, you know, they want, it's almost like sort of a, an organic uh, digital business, you know, like it's sort of nice, green and clean. Um, but they not only published the salaries of anyone, we could, you and I could sit here now and search the salaries of everyone. But this year in November, they published the index that determines those salaries. So okay. at least trying to put some reasoning behind it. So, yeah. so at least trying to say, the, you know, if someone's got this and got this, then they'll earn more money. Mm, exactly. I guess we have to remember, say, in the old old days, you, has, you used to have pay bans, yeah. right? And that's kind of completely gone away now where, where essentially it just comes down to individual deals which you're able to cut. And what we know, say, going back to gender, is that men tend to drive a harder, harder bargain and they also have higher self-serving bias, higher belief in their own value, generally speaking. Yeah, although, although back to the thing where you're sort of checking ourselves and our own instincts, yeah. I think quite often, in, in my experience, I've seen that when a woman asserts and pushes forward yeah. it's seen as unappealing that's true and when a man does an yeah. identical action you exactly. could probably do an a b test on it yeah a man does an identical action it's seen as sort of yeah. this desirable hunter-gatherer instinct yeah. you're absolutely right bruce i mean there was actually a study of um senators in the u.s congress and they tracked how much they spoke what they spoke about spoke about and then their you know, approval ratings and what they showed is that when women spoke more used more assertive language their approval ratings down went down whereas when m- men spoke 
more and used assertive language, their approval ratings went up. Yeah. So thanks for that. We're going to be back in just two minutes talking about some of Andre's books this year. Pubs. Yeah, we all love the pub. I'm doing an episode on pubs and work culture. In Britain, for a long time, many of us saw going to the pub as an important part of our jobs, important part of the culture that we built up, and having a laugh at work meant going to the pub afterwards. We always hear about work hard, play hard. It was an unspoken aspect of many jobs. But over the last few years, there's been a recognition that maybe pubs excluded certain people, favoured others. What can we do to replace the good things that pubs might have added to work but do it in a more inclusive way. I'm doing an episode on this in the next few weeks and I want to hear from you. Email me, podcast at eatsleepworkrepeat.fm or link into me, Bruce Daisley. I just want to hear your opinions, good or bad, how pubs have affected your work culture. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, so I'm back with Andre Spicer. I didn't actually introduce Andre properly before. So Andre is a professor of organisational behaviour at London's CAS Business School. And uh, as, as we're about to discuss, he's, he's a... He's He's the author of several books. So you've had a couple of big books out this year, Andre, and, and Business Bullshit certainly uh, got a load of publicity. Sort of, I, I guess Business Bullshit is your stab. It's a bit of a breath of fresh air against the riding, rising tide of, of office nonsense. And uh, it was sort of widely featured. There was a long read of it in a couple of publications. What made you did turn your anger and annoyance into this long attack on, on business jargon well i mean i've been studying organizational culture for for probably a decade or something and and i went along to this meeting in a large bank here in london up on up in canary wharf went up onto the 23rd floor and went into a beautiful meeting room and we sat down and there were two people leading the culture change in uh culture change program in that that organization and one of them began talking for about 25 minutes blah 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 and i was like sitting scratching my head what what are they saying sounds impressive but yeah uh, and then the second one began talking blah 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 25 minutes 
also sounded impressive. And then, uh, then they were like, thanks, see you guys later. Okay, we walked out. Um, I'd taken a tape recording of the meeting and I sat down and listened to it afterwards. And I was impressed just after the meeting. But when I listened to it, I just realized this is just empty, meaningless right. language. And then I began thinking about it more broadly. I see this all the time with people talking in this empty kind of meaningless way in order to say a lot and say absolutely nothing at all. So this then prompted me to sort of begin to look at the corporate landscape more generally and look at how we use this empty language and also empty practices to kind of get away from actually doing things and, and the, the harm this is doing to our organisation. is it peacocking? Is it signalling? So, you know, I, I chatted to a guy um, – who's going to be on in a couple of weeks. And he said, he said that, you know, if you, if you put kids in a room with a, a job and then you put adults in a room with a job, often the kids get to the task of doing the job yeah. and adults get to the job, the task of signalling the hierarchy in the room. So the yeah. language they use, the positioning they use. Is, is business bullshit signalling? Is it sort of social yeah. positioning? Yeah, this is a good part of it is social positioning. So um, what, part of it's showing that you're part of the tribe, right? When you can speak uh, about uh, cutting in, Edge, um, uh, social media strategies and this, that, and the other thing, or you know, our business modeling processes, it shows you're in the know and you're part of the group. Um, and that's why people go and do MBAs a lot of the time. They say, oh, I'm pretty good at my job, but I just need the lingo to get to the right, next amazing. step. Right. Uh, and that's the thing they feel most confident coming away from it with. They don't feel confident about coming away with generic skills. Even though they get those, they feel like they can speak the language. Right. Um, so, so yeah, there is signaling going on there. But I think the problem is that that signaling can kind of can sometimes be useful because it allows you to attract resources, prove, you know, feel good about yourself, gain self. It's a self-confidence trick sometimes. But sometimes it can be really harmful, I think. So that can be harmful because you spend more time signaling and not enough time actually doing the task. Uh, the other thing um, which can be very harmful is that all of that signaling can uh, be kind of a bit of a bluff which means that people don't then don't get down to the actual issues and they don't say, hey, I don't really understand what's going on here. They kind of play along. I mean, I've sat in many meetings before where I've wanted to seem like I'm on, on it and used this language and then walked away from it thinking, well, you know, I should have asked this or that question. So in the book, you talked about uh, Stephen Oblap's uh, email at, at Nokia yeah. when he was selling to Microsoft and it's like, hello, was yeah. it hello everyone? Uh, hello there, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and it's sort of this. It's this long opaque chapter about their objectives, and it effectively ends with you know three quarters of the company are going to be sold, uh, are going to be lose their jobs, and you go, you're going to be sold to Microsoft. And and I, is your point effectively because I, I've seen you discussing that. Uh, Nokia never fundamentally answered its own problems internally. Yeah. And is your point that the sort of the opacity of the language in that email is illustrative that the conversation inside the company was completely jar? It was polluted by trash, trash in the sea. Yeah, absolutely. So there was there was far more trash than actually addressing the the actual issues. So if we just look at that email, essentially what we see is that mo no one wants to lose their job, but no one. Uh, what's even worse is that if you get a lot of blah 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 about innovative new uh, innovation envelopes and all sorts of other weird stuff and then you're told like after reading a lot of this rubbish oh your job's gonna go right it's like adding insult to injury and if you then look at the kind of history of nokia what you see is that an organ it was an organization which just had more and more and more jargon and one of the major reasons for this is that they had a kind of positivity rule 
only tell us good news. So what happened in 2007 when the iPhone launched, uh, Nokia was in a pretty good position, 41% of the world's mobile phone market. Uh, They had a pretty good idea of what was coming from Apple that actually developed the world's first smartphone, so they had the technology. But they were developing a software. I can't actually remember the name of it. Symbian, exactly. They were developing Symbian, which most of the engineers in the company knew didn't really work that well. But they also knew that if they spoke up, told the negative news upwards in the organization, they'll be told, don't talk negatively. We only want positive news. And by the way, your division's being downsized or you're not going up for promotion. So the people who got ahead were those people like, Symbian's fantastic. It's working. I've got this fix, et cetera. Like, you know, know, yes, yes, men, basically. Um, And as a result, they developed this product for about a year longer, the the software platform, a a year longer than they should have done. Um, And in the meantime, Apple and uh, Samsung accelerated ahead. Nokia, where is it now? It's not making mobile phones anymore. Yeah, so so I guess what you're basically saying is that, you know, in this bullshit, in these trappings of, you know, trying to pretend, it's mm-hmm. sort of like if, if, all yeah. the li- if all of life is pretending, yeah, yeah. then this language helps you dress up in a fancier yeah. clothes. It's actually preventing you from doing the job properly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So sometimes... A bit of bullshit is all right. I mean, that's that's kind of what I realized when I was writing this book. We need bullshit sometimes to to be nice to people and to kind of fudge social situations. And we also need sometimes to appear a bit more confident when we are. But if we do it all the time, then that's super dangerous because it gets us away from actually our core job and pointing out problems. The one final thing I'd add here is this is really dangerous. It's maybe fine when you're in a company and, you know, there's some problems. But if you look at, say, healthcare sector or schools, um, UK teachers, I think, teach about face-to-face with students about 16 hours a day and they work 48 hours. What's happening with the with mm. that, that gap? And if you look at the world's best performing school system, which is Finland, they teach face-to-face 21 hours and they work... Uh, 31 hours, right? So it seems that what I think this big gap is being taken up by teachers. If you t- speak with any teacher, their time is just taken up dealing with administration, uh, pointless change exercises and all of these other things. And it means they have less and less time to actually do their job. And as a result, then there's, you know, I think about, you know, I think it's over 50% of teachers are considering quitting in the next few years. It's, it's so interesting because that echoes everything that I've been discovering that effectively over the last... 15 years of connectivity, we've layered more and more into jobs because we can send people just this quick form to fill in because we can invite them to to Mm. fill it. You can fill it out on your phone. You can fill it out on your phone. We've added more and more to our jobs. It's just this bloatware that that work's become bloated. And the solution to fix work in any any reasonable capacity is going to be to start taking things away from it. Exactly. I think you've hit the nail on the head, Bruce, is that basically there's a core job that most people have. That's the reason they're there. That's the value. You know, the value they're adding. So if you're a teacher, you're there to teach, right? If you're there to run a team, you want to work with your team. But then you've added all of this bloat, you know, often this form, this this process, this uh, thing. And most of that's useless, yeah. right? And the only way to improve jobs, pe- people's lives and people's performance, keep them there, is to focus back on what people's core job is and get back to that rather than adding this little thing and this little thing on the edge of it. And just yeah, I've got to talk about this other book that you've got out because it's it's uh, it's fabulously entertaining. I guess the, you know the, the thing that runs consistent through all of your books is your 
your sort of dry wit and and your your dour approach. And so I, I guess anyone seeing that you'd taken on a year of self improvement in this book, uh, desperately seeking self improvement, might think that you'd entered with a rather cynical eye to it. And yeah. like, so, so talk through, I mean, uh, 12 months of you and your partner yeah. doing different challenges of self-improvement. Yeah. So a few years ago, Carl Cedarstrom, uh, my writing partner, and I wrote this book called The Wellness Syndrome, where, you know, there'd been a lot of positive talk about, you know, being happy at work and increasing your wellness, all that sort of stuff. All, all important. But often it led people to feel like they were under pressure to, yeah. so that they were hyper well. So, <laughs> you know, go down to your local smoothie joint and take an f- Instagram of yourself where you're slapping down a green smoothie and then go out and put up your 30-kilometer run on, you know, all that sort of stuff. And we sort of took a bit of a cynical eye to it and, you know, criticized many of the problems of it. And one of the big pushbacks we got was, okay, you're complaining about all this stuff, but have you done it yourself? Right, right? okay. And the honest answer was pretty much no, right? I mean, I, you know, dabbled in some of this stuff every now and then. Carl pretty much had never done any of this stuff at all. So we thought, okay, to be serious social scientists, let's go and give it a try and look at the culture from the inside. So the plan was basically to spend a whole year inside the kind of self-optimization movement, people trying to sort of optimize themselves and look at it from the inside. And we're not just going and talking. We, we turn ourselves into human guinea pigs and trying all this stuff on ourselves right so um and and in order to do this we tried to put our skepticism inside and just say okay we're just going to do it right and we're just going to enter into it not ask questions and just record what happened and because i guess you know we are surrounded all the time aren't we with the likes of tim ferris your your word about tim ferris which always makes me laugh is is that you know tim ferris's four four hour work week is talk without relationship to the truth Mm -hmm. and you know we're surrounded with people who are trying to make us if not actively, then sort of passively, passive-aggressively asserting that the way that we're living our lives is what idiots do. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's better ways, and we need to be drinking bulletproof coffee yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and doing Tabata exercises. Yeah. And, and actually, everything we're doing is wrong. So you entered thinking, I'm going to at least give it a go. Yeah. Exactly. So so we decided that we were going to spend the whole year, like every month, one challenge. So the first month, maximize product, optimize productivity. So both Carl and I, my writing partner, tried to write a book in a month. And guess what? We kind of succeeded. The second month was uh, body. Carl had never been to a gym before. He enters into a, a CrossFit gym. And by the end of the month, he's competing in a professional weightlifting tournament. Uh, I train for and run an ultra marathon in one month. Um, the sec- third month is about the brain. So maximizing the brain. Carl becomes a memorization expert and lives pi to 1,000 digits. And I try and learn computer programming, which I fail at. <laughs> then I'm punished. Yeah. <laughs> so I ha- my punishment is I have to go to Speaker's Corner here in Hyde Park and give a speech about why I'm an asshole, which wasn't the most plen- uh, fun thing. And by this time, Carl and I were fighting a lot. So we, we have a counselor who counsels us. And Carl also basically learns French in one month. I mean, that was the remarkable one. Because I guess lot. I mean, like these later on, you go in and do sex-related things. But yeah. these, um, but the learning French in a month. I actually, when I read that, I thought there's two parts that. I, firstly, the concentration. Yeah. So both of you stumbled upon the fact that 
to accomplish things in the January in the productivity thing, there is actually a route to producing more. And like, I'm in awe of the fact that you both wrote books. And it's the, principally the most effective thing was this Pomodoro method, right? Yeah, exactly. So basically, what you, that's very simple. You have to get rid of, if you want to be productive, you have to get rid of things, right? You have to push things aside. So the Pomodoro method is you simply set a time for 25 minutes and you say, I'm going to focus and work for 25 minutes. And then any of the crap that comes across my brain, like let's check my Facebook page or let's uh, look at the phone, you put that off until the five-minute break, which you have after 25 minutes. So you do you know, five, uh, 25 minutes, then five-minute break, 25 minutes, five-minute break, and you do four or five of those and then take a longer break. So it's really useful if you have a big task you need to do, whatever that is, whether that's uh, you know paying your bills or whether that's writing a book or uh, whatever, you know, even talking with someone you don't want to talk with. 25 minutes and then your five-minute break and you can do it. Yeah. So, so go on. So, so um, were there any highlights? I mean, oh, it's, I think... it's, a, it's a very entertaining yeah. as you're going through these different... Different and actually the 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 conflict between yourself and Carl is actually quite amusing. Yeah, it? exactly. So we often don't talk that much about male friendships and how how they can go wrong sometimes. And this is a case study of of how that happened. But I mean, for me, I think uh, one of the the highlights of the year was. Um, in August where I decided I was going to become a stand-up comedian and I was telling this to my father who was visiting me from New Zealand and he said to me well Andre as he looked into the distance our family's just not that funny <laughs> <laughs> so but then I went on and get, uh, performed at the Edinburgh Festival and got precisely two laughs uh, and then repeated <laughs> this in, in uh, London and I got seven I felt like I, I'm a bona fide stand-up <laughs> comedian but the interesting thing I learned there Bruce was that um, that to be a good stand-up comedian, you're only seen as good by the stand-up comedian uh, community after you've done 1,000 gigs. Oh, get out of here. Yeah. What, what is the measure of that? Or they say how many gigs you've done, you say about 1,000. and Yeah. Okay. And okay, that's why yeah. Jimmy Carr is a bit of a legend, apparently, as he did his 1,000 gigs, apparently, in one year. Okay. Uh, which is pretty intense, right? Right, that's remarkable. And why is that? Because they they must see so many people coming in and out of the profession. Yeah. So many sort of career tourists, I'm going to try stand up. Yeah. And they don't last. Exactly. I think it's that. But it's also like most things that uh, you need to repeat and repeat and right. repeat and repeat. And you begin to learn timing. You begin to learn how to deal with audiences. And the other thing I was surprised with is you just use the same material over and over and over again. So I remember the second least uh, experienced person when I was doing my second gig, I sort of said, oh, you know, so how long you've been using this material? Uh, his most, uh, his, his youngest material, his most recent material was about six months old. And he'd been using that like week in, week out wow. for six months. So that, I think that tells it's you not a little... what you visualize, is it? No, no. You, I, I, I've always thought these deliberate misdirection but you know used to eddie Izzard when he was in his pump used to pretend or create the illusion that it was all improvised yeah but then you'd watch him two or three times and you think i've seen all of these material yeah. before it's just he's adding little flourishes around the edges exactly and it's only once you've got it completely down pat yeah you can and i think that tells us a lot about how you learn a new skill right yeah. and how people get good at things is that just through repetition are there any things you're still doing um, good question. So I'm still using the Pomodoros every now and then. Uh, what else am I still doing? I think I've I, I've been amazed about how quickly I've gone back to my old ways, <laughs> basically. <laughs> what book was it you wrote? 
uh, what was that? Uh, it was basic. So for me, it's a, uh, it's basically two parts of two books. So it was kind of if you put them together, it's basically one book. So the half, book that you wrote in January. In yeah, that, yeah, in, yeah. So okay. half half of the business bullshit right, book, okay. and then half of another book, which right, I had okay. to finish up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it. it. To, I'll leave exactly cheating a tiny bit. <laughs> but Carl, Carl actually wrote. He didn't write just one book. He kind of wrote uh, most of uh, another book, which is going to come out soon about happiness. Strangely enough. Um, and then also he wrote a murder mystery. Um, Get out of here. Yeah, yeah, a Scandi noir kind of thriller. Um, I mean, this dude has <laughs> nailed it. He learned French. He wrote a murder mystery. Yeah. Wow, incredible. Yeah, yeah, and became an expert masturbator as well. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to get onto that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fabulous. Good. Right, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here, Andre. Thank you so much for joining me. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the episodes are on the website, which is eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. See you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 